good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. In today's program, we are completing the study from 2 Kings chapter 3 that we commenced last week. In that study, we noted that there were three kings who went to war. And as they went to war, they had neglected to seek counsel from God or to seek his blessing. Two of those kings, Jehoram in the north and Jehoshaphat in the south, should have known the importance of seeking God before they engaged in warfare. The chapter opens with Jehoram's reign in the northern region and how Moab had rebelled against Jehoram after the death of Jehoram's father Ahab. And so Jehoram seeks to teach Moab a lesson and engages in war, making this alliance with Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and later on the king of Edom joins in the company. In their folly, they make a way through the wilderness and come upon the crisis of a lack of water. Only at that point does Jehoshaphat advocate the need to seek the Lord. And so the passage teaches us much about the neglect of God and his word. As we read the word of God and come to the end of the section, It is one of those portions that cause us to wonder and marvel at the grace of God to those who do not deserve that grace. May this word be an encouragement to your hearts today. And so let's hear the word of God as we read from 2 Kings chapter 3 and the verse number 14. And Elisha said, uh, this is in response to the request of these three kings, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before, before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee nor see thee. But now bring me a minstrel. And it came to pass when the minstrel played, that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Make this valley full of ditches. For thus saith the Lord, ye shall not see wind, and neither shall ye see rain, yet that valley shall be filled with water, that ye may drink both ye and your cattle and your beasts. And this is but a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will deliver the Moabites also into your hand. And ye shall smite every fenced city, and every choice city, and shall fail every good tree, and stop all wells of water, and mar every good piece of land with stones. And it came to pass in the morning, when the meat offering was offered, that, behold, there came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. So what you have here is the word of God through the mouth of Elisha regarding this time of crisis for these three kings in the battle. And we've looked at this account last time, uh, dealing with the issue of, well, what place does the Word of God play in your life or in the life of the kingdom? And we noticed last time the neglect of the Word. Uh, We took time to consider the compromise of Jehoram and Jehoshaphat, spiritual lukewarmness. Jehoram was not as bad as his father, 
But he was an evil king nonetheless. Jehoshaphat was a good king and yet had this tendency to engage in alliances with the northern kings. There's compromise. And we thought last time how this matter of spiritual compromise leads to neglect of the word, and neglect of the word leads to spiritual compromise. And these, these two men who should have known better, they go into battle neglecting the word of the Lord. They go to battle without inquiring what is the Lord's will at this time. When we neglect the Lord, we are sure to run into ruin in every area of our lives. Whatever your situation is here tonight, I want to remind you of that word of counsel and warning. You leave the Lord out, I guarantee there will be misery and ruin to follow. And so what happens then, we've read the verses already, there was then this desire for the word. For Jehoram, there is no word from the Lord. Verse 13, Elisha says to Jehoram, what have I to do with thee? Go back to the prophets of your father. In other words, go back to your pagan prophets. They were, again, remember, they were worthless on Mount Carmel in the days of Elijah. And so Elisha is saying, I have no word from God for you. However, he has a word for them because he regards the presence of Jehoshaphat. Verse 14. God regards Jehoshaphat undeserved, gracious. Yes, Jehoshaphat for me shows us an example of a, of a man who is like us all. Those of us who are born again in the Spirit of God, there is reigning righteousness and yet there is remaining sin. His remaining sin was a tendency to make allies with the wicked northern kings. But he has reigning righteousness. The Bible's testimony for him is a, it's a good testimony. And yet there's still this matter of remaining sin. And so for God to regard his presence was a mark of God's grace. Jehoshaphat doesn't deserve this word any more than Jehoram does. It's all of God. It's all of grace. Now, last time we considered the application of this passage towards the individual believer. Now, we did conclude by mentioning that the church must ensure that the business of the kingdom is done only in dependence on the Lord. We concluded there, we made the point that a church must not neglect the Lord and the need for God's direction and God's intervention. But as we see the outcome here, we see the nation benefiting because God regards the face of Jehoshaphat. I think it's a foreshadowing of the grace that we enjoy. God regards the face of his son. Oh, his son without any compromise, without any apostasy at all. One who is wholly harmless, undefiled. And we benefit because God regards the face of Christ. And that is true here. And so as we make our way through the remainder of this chapter, I want to consider it more broadly. Not so much here regarding the individual, but regarding the work of God. The benefits that we enjoy by grace for Christ's sake. And so what you see here is, having noted the neglect of the word and the desire for the word, you note that there is God's grace in the word. Elisha brings a word of grace 
Verse 15, now bring me a minstrel. It's one of those curious details in historical narratives. It's very hard to be certain as to why he asked for someone to come and play for him. Some suggest it was to, to soothe like David does for Saul, but that is entirely speculative. One thing we do know is in 1 Kings 10, when Saul goes out, he finds a company of prophets with a psaltery, a tabret, a pipe, and a harp, and they then prophesy. And so it may well be in the case that there was this pattern of practice uh, these Old Testament prophets prophesied in connection with the singing of praise. There is that in the Word of God. There's that connection between the songs of Zion, the praise of Zion, and the Word of God. We, we have that many times in the Word of God. And it reminds us again of the importance when we come to study the Word of God, we do so in the atmosphere of praise. But be that as it may, we have the truth in verse 15 that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And what does that mean? Well, we're told in verse 16, And he said, Thus saith the Lord. The word of God that has been neglected is a word that comes by grace and with grace. The armies, the kings, they simply want water for their armies, but they get more than they ask for. Yes, verse 17 indicates that there's going to be water in the valley. But that is a small thing, a light thing for the Lord. He's also going to give the victory in the battle. The Moabites are going to be into the hands or given into the hands of these three kings. And so at this point, as God's grace comes in the word, there is a general principle to stop and consider. And that is that the grace of God is superabundant in generosity. I think that's what we find so difficult. That's why I began as I began, why does God forbid, forgive a, a robber right as he dies? Why does God bless a receiver like Jacob? I think we all struggle with the nature of God's grace. Happy to receive it ourselves, but struggle more when others receive it who we deem to be undeserving. Within ourselves, there's always a tendency to harbor the belief that we deserve God's blessing. Not maybe in our conversion. I'm not even referring to our conversion here. I'm referring to the sense that we can harbor the view that when we come to consider the work of God, we come to believe, well, we deserve God's favor upon our work and our labors. But none of us ever deserve the blessing of God. We're just like Jehoshaphat. We are those who, who, yes, by God's grace, have been given a new heart. We're born again of the Spirit of God. But that remaining sin within us ensures that all that we enjoy, we enjoy by grace. These kings did not deserve this superabundant grace. They receive more than they can ask or think. According to God's power, they receive that in the language of Ephesians chapter 3. It is altogether undeserving. Tell me the truth. Is there not sometimes when you consider the challenges we face denominationally, 
that you come to the point and you say, well, you know, we, we, we are a good church. We still have a prayer meeting. We believe in the authority of the Bible. We hold to a reformed confession. We believe in preaching evangelistically. There's all of these things. And surely the Lord would see all of that. And therefore, surely we, we deserve blessing. Now, we will see shortly there's a connection between God's blessing and obedience. But at the end of the day, any blessing we enjoy is only because of God's grace. You see, turn to 1 Corinthians 15, please. We understand that there is the benefit of God's grace in our lives individually. It brings us to saving faith. And we're kept by the power of God. We understand that. But what I want to show you again is, is really that the progress of God's kingdom, the progress of his church is all by grace. You have Paul's language here in 1 Corinthians 15. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. What he's describing there is his conversion. He's saved by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that he's been called to be an apostle, verse number 9. He was a persecutor of the church. But by the grace of God, he becomes a beacon for truth and an apostle to the Gentiles. And he says that grace was not in vain. But then having dealt with his conversion, he says, But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So in other words, Paul is telling us, as he tells the Corinthian believers, that every single labor he was engaged in was by the grace of God. And that means that every single success he enjoyed was only by the grace of God. Not once did he earn a soul's salvation. Not once did he earn the establishment of a local church. Not once did he earn the strength of the church. It's all the labor that is by God's grace. And so God has all the glory. There is, there is that need for the reminder that we are what we are as a church by the grace of God, and we will only be what we will be in the future by the grace of God. You see, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and here you see an example of a church that is functioning well and that is working well. Our church is in plural. Verse number 1 of chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit or to know of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. He's going to say, talk about their generosity, their giving. A church functioning as it ought to function, doing the, the will of God for the well-being of others. But why do they do what is good? Well, Paul tells in verse number 1, that he wants him to know of the grace of God bestowed. It's only by God's grace that a church is established and strengthened, and it's only by God's grace that a church does what is pleasing in the sight of God. And so we're looking back, I know we're looking back at 2 Kings chapter 3, we're considering the work of God here to these three kings. But it is a reminder to us 
that God is free in His sovereign purpose to bless in a manner that He gets all the glory. These kings, they neglected the Lord. They forgot to inquire of the Lord before they go to battle against Moab. They call upon God, if you like, late in the day. And God is still pleased to bless them for the sake of his covenant king Jehoshaphat. That's a real comfort to us here tonight. For we must look back over the years and surely we must be honest that we have not sought God with those prayers of faith the way we ought to have. That we have at times gone about the Lord's work in our own strength. We've got to be honest. And yet there is the encouragement in the word of God that God freely, according to his own good pleasure, may bless as we call upon him for his mercy. That's an encouragement. None of us deserve God's blessing. We don't deserve to see souls saved. We don't deserve to see a church growing. But we have a God who delights in a superabundance of grace that where sin abounds, even in the church, grace doth much more abound. 2 Kings chapter 3 is ultimately just a microcosm of the entire language of the Bible. God blesses sinful men. That's the general principle. Let me give you two particular details and then we're, we're finished. First of all, note that there is this connection, I said, between the grace of God and obedience. Verse 16, there's a command. Thus saith the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. Verse 19, ye shall smite every fenced city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop all wells of water and mar every good piece of land with stones. Two commands. Verse number 25 gives the details of the obedience to the second of those commands. And they beat down the cities and every good piece of land cast every man a stone and filled it, etc. This victory over Moab is a mark of God's undeserved favor. Yet it is God's way to give grace in the context of obedience. Think this through. By faith we obey the Lord. We refer to that language in our, in our Christian living, in the life of the church. By faith we obey the Lord's word. Why is it by faith? It's by faith because we've heard a promise from God. And having heard the Lord's word of promise, we believe that word of promise and we obey by faith, believing the promise of God. Now the battle here is all of God. Verse number 21, the Moabites heard that the kings were come to fight against them. They gathered all the rabble, they put on armor and they stand at the border. And then verse number 22, and they rose up early in the morning and the sun shone upon the water. What water? The water that God had provided miraculously. Without wind or rain, the water comes into the valley. Verse number 20, that's what it says. There came water by the way of Edom, and the country was filled with water. And that very water God uses to confuse the Moabites. They see the water as red as blood. 
and they make their own conclusion. The kings are slain. They've smitten one another. Now, therefore, Moab to the spoil. And they go to battle, and Israel smite them. Who gets the glory in this battle? Well, a right-thinking Bible student would understand that God gets all the glory. This is a miraculous time of conquest for the people of God. And yet it comes in the context of God's people doing the will of God at the same time. God performs a miracle. And yet God commands obedience. That's how God works. He gives us promises, things that encourage us. And along the promises, there are commands to be obeyed. Zealous evangelism doesn't earn God's favor, but God commands it and uses it. The same can be said for expository preaching. It doesn't earn God's favor, but God commands it and blesses it. The same we said for godly parenting. Parenting doesn't earn God's favor. It doesn't earn children's salvation. But God has promised to bless godly parenting. The same can be said for earnest prayer. A church of prayer doesn't earn God's favor. It's a mistake if we imagine that we've worked up God's favor by our prayer meetings here. It's all of grace. But what we must understand that in the language of the Bible, there is this bringing together of man's obedience with God's blessing in such a way that God gets all the glory. Because we obey by faith in the sovereign grace and the promise of God. And so you have in the language of the Great Commission, go into all the world. Go and make disciples, teach all nations. Go and do these things. And they do so in the context of promises. The promise of the Spirit's presence and the promise of the success in the work. How do you tie these things together? Well, remember what the Bible says. The battle is the Lord's. He has all the glory. But at the same time, we've got to dig ditches. We've got to fell trees. There are things that we're responsible for in our obedience. And God is pleased as we obey to sovereignly work and see the kingdom advanced because he regards the presence of his covenant king Christ. The second particular detail is that this grace comes not only in connection with obedience, but also in connection with sacrifice. Verse number 20. And it came to pass in the morning, when the meat offering was offered, that behold, there came water by the way of Edom. Now, we should remember here that when the authorized version refers to meat offering, it's not referring to animal flesh. The meat was an old English term that spoke of meal, grain. And so this is the grain offering referred to over in Exodus chapter uh, 29. And what you'll see there in Exodus 29, the verse number 41, and there's a lamb, the other lamb thou shalt offer at even, and thou shalt do thereto according to the meat offering of the morning. The sense being that when the meat offering was offered in the morning, it was done alongside the sacrifice of a lamb. 
This is a very important principle in the typology here of 2 Kings chapter 3. And that is that it is in connection with sacrifice that God blesses. And the sacrifice, of course, is a pointing forward to Christ's sacrifice. But with the connection with the meat offering, there's also the sense of thankfulness for blessing. And so what you're seeing here is that the people of God have heard the promise of God. They obey the word of God. They offer sacrifice and they do so with a thankful heart in anticipation of enjoying God's blessing. Thankfulness, sacrifice, and grace and blessing all coming together in this picture. Why does God show grace? Because of Christ's sacrifice. That's the reason for all blessing on the earth through the cross. Grace is purchased for individuals through the cross. Grace is purchased for the church. Remember hearing the acrostic of some years ago now for the word grace. G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Free gift, costing the greatest price. And Christ paid the price so that his church could know Grace. And as we remember that principle, we then do so in connection with the think thought of thanksgiving. Well, we acknowledge, we praise God for his grace and his mercy toward us. That is the right spirit when it comes to the work of God. Our only hope is God's grace. We don't deserve God's blessing. At the same time, we must resolve to obey the will of God, to do the commands of God. But as we do that, we remember that as we obey, we only do so by the grace of God, and then its success is only by the grace of God. But when we enjoy success and we see God's blessing, we must make sure we have a thankful heart. It really is a microcosm of Christianity here. It's an unusual portion. Three kings, a strange alliance... Why would God bless them? Well, in part that you and I would understand the principles of God's working in this world. It's all of grace. It's all for His glory. And despite our sins, we can still ask for God to bless us and bless His work. And may God help us to apply this in our lives today for His name's sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170. That's 610-993-3170. Or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.